0: Pack your bags
1: with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to
0: come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us, and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to another episode of Twice Upon a Time, and I'm delighted to say, and actually a bit nervous to announce, that my guest this afternoon is Helen Zaltzman, who is, well, podcaster supreme. I know, it's really daunting, Helen, to sit opposite someone who has won prizes for years... (laughs) their podcasts when I am really in the shallows here. But I'm so happy to be talking to you.
2: I love to daunt. (laughs) I love for people to fear me at the start of a recording. It's not going to be
1: fine. It's not fear, it's all. It's all Definitely
2: not. Damn it. Um, Thank you. It's very flattering. What book have you chosen for us? I have chosen the book When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit by Judith Carr, um, which is... Uh, I think a very uh, heavily autobiographical novel. I think it's pretty much exactly what happened to her and her family about how when she was nine, um, she and her parents and her older brother had to flee Berlin in 1933, um, the day before the election where Hitler came into power. And they went to Switzerland first and then to Paris because um, no one would employ her father, who was a, a famous writer. And that's why they had to leave Germany in a hurry, because uh, he had been speaking against the Nazis. Uh, so they, they had to keep moving to try to find money and safety. And at the very end of the book, they go to London. And what happens to them in London? Well, there's a sequel, but we're not talking about that. So <laughs> um, Yeah, there's about a year and a half of her life in uh, four different countries. It's
1: a wonderful book. I have to say, I hadn't read it before. I've only read her books for children. And it's also illustrated by her. And mm. The cover alone and even the spine is absolutely delightful. How,
2: how did you get your copy? Uh, I think I probably got it from the library. I was a very, very voracious reader when I was a child. So I, I would belong to three libraries just to keep myself supplied. And then I would reread books constantly as well. We only had four TV channels. So you have to make your own fun. And um, so I probably read this book several times. It only struck me, looking at it this time, that the illustrations, so many of them, don't include Anna, who is the Judith Carr analogue, because they're from her point of view, so you're really seeing what Judith Carr's eyes saw at the time. It's true, absolutely, yeah.
1: And and how many books could you borrow in each library? I'm just doing some maths here.
2: Yeah, I think four, just the four. But that's 12, and that keeps you going for, like, a couple hours or... (laughs)
1: Do you lose the ability to do that, do you think, when you get older?
2: I know, I'm speaking from myself,
1: from my experience, I think I have.
2: Yes, and I, I think, to be fair, a lot of the children's books are shorter and uh, maybe a little more fun to read. But um, I, I was a book reviewer for a lot of my 20s and early 30s, and that completely obliterated my ability to read for fun and choose my own books. So I had to rebuild that again. People say that after an English degree too, don't they? Oh, I did one of those. Yeah, that that did wreck it. (laughs) Absolutely, that's levelled everything off. Have you still got a copy of it? No, I don't. I'm not sure I ever had my own copy. I don't have that many books that I had when I was a child. They must have been disposed of at various family moves or such. Did you move a lot? No, we didn't. My parents, they moved a lot until I was two. My eldest brother, I think they lived in nine different places in the decade before I was born and then they (laughs) couldn't afford to move anymore so they stayed in the same house from when I was two till 25 but then they moved multiple times and I think thus disposed of the childhood crap that we had left (laughs) with them until I I know it just in perpetuity. Where, Where did you used to go to read? I think just wherever I could get away with it without being disturbed. I remember after I was supposed to be lights out and not reading after 9pm and my room was at the top of the stairs and I had to keep the door open so they could check that I wasn't reading and I found that it's so infuriating. And was it a family of readers? I think my mum read quite a bit. Well, she was certainly a huge fan of reading and I remember she was always trying to make me read historical novels as in things set in the ninth century with a lot of like muddy warfare and I always really hated them. And looking back on it, I also think they had a lot of sexual violence in which is is not what I was particularly drawn to as a child or now, but I think when you're a child you why um but so, our house was full of books, but actually, now you ask, maybe other people didn't read that much. My dad read a lot of newspapers, it was just piles of newspapers everywhere, and he had a lot of art books, and he had a lot of books pertaining to various health fads that he'd had. That lasted two months for a lot of things about boiling nettles and smearing it all over your face or (laughs) i don't know quite a lot of scientology books because that was something he did for a year um weirdly they kept some of those until last year but not some of our childhood favorites so it's a puzzle and my brother just memorized cricket stats and my other brother i think found reading quite difficult so was less inclined to do it for pleasure then so yeah, maybe it was just me. Wow, just <laughs> I'm just going to have to edit all of my memories now. Excuse me.
1: I had this terrible vision that if you dispose of a Scientology book, you get somehow punished. But maybe that's
2: just my dim view. Yes, they come to your house and yes. they I found this in your bin. Exactly.
1: Explain yourself. <laughs> yeah. You won't go on that special cruise.
2: <clears throat> yeah, special cruise, that's what they call Sea Org. <laughs>
1: going back to the book
2: now. Oh,
1: yes. <laughs> this, I found this book astonishing because... Although she's writing about herself, obviously, as a little girl and, and the story of her life and weaves in how she felt about her brother, her parents, her friends, what she was learning at the time, she manages, I think, I don't know if you agree, a really interesting, maybe it's not even a trick, of, of giving you both perspectives. I mean, she was writing this, you know, it was published in 71, when she was you know, fully grown up. But she manages to keep hold of her childhood self but all the time letting in what is actually happening to her family. It's a huge tribute to her parents that although these terrible things were happening both peripherally and, and informing what they did, she isn't scared.
2: Yes, I found that so fascinating going back to this book, having not read it since maybe I was about 10, and just seeing the parents. At the time of reading it, I just thought, oh, her parents are funny, and they're doing all these sweet jokes like when Uh, she finds out there's a price that has been placed on her father's head and uh, she's upset and he says, oh, I'm upset too because it's only a thousand marks. It ought to be much more. I'm going to write a letter to complain (laughs) to Hitler. Um, And so at the time I just thought, oh, they're being funny because my family was funny. So I thought that was normal. And then now looking back at it, you just see all these ways they're trying to protect the children and the children can still tell that their parents are anxious or that they're very worried about money. But they're not, Scared, and, and the fact that she's kind of thrilled to be a refugee, she's looking forward to going when she finds out it's going to happen. And she really loves living in these different places and, and finds that exciting, which is sort of amazing, isn't it? And particularly that,
1: that reminds me of that, that incident with the price on his head. Her, her brother tells her, her older brother, who, funnily enough, throughout the book does very little work until right <laughs> at the end, ends up a high court judge here, sort of president of the Law Society, so no slouch he. But when she's told that her father had a price, she has this horrible vision of him being literally hit on the head by tonnes of pounds worth of coins and therefore suffering huge physical pain. And that's what she's frightened about because that she took it so literally. And I thought, that's a really fabulous example of what I mean about writing a child and those things that frighten you as a child, which an adult just immediately pushes away and goes, don't be so silly, it's this... But it's so vivid that you're sort of with her for a moment. You're ten as well. It's very clever.
2: Yes, I I felt like she really captured so much of that. And um, when the Reichstag fire happens, and it's only about a three-sentence event in the book, and uh, she describes seeing the sky of Berlin lit up orange, and what one adult says about it, and then what her mother says about it, which is that... The Nazis started it themselves so that they could use it as leverage. And then, that, then that's it. And, and that really reminded me of like when you hear adults talking about stuff when you're a child and you glean a sentence worth of stuff, but fundamentally you're not that interested. And when later they're talking about Hitler and concentration camps and stuff, she's like, oh, whole conversations sound like this now.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, she's she's allowed that languorous boredom of childhood, isn't it, really? Because you have no uh, timetable, particularly apart from the one you are given. So you have to just back at a certain time, get to school at a certain time, but yeah, nothing else farm. is imposed. Yeah, yeah. I love the, um, the fact that although she knows they're leaving the house, and that's all done terribly quickly, her father lit- genuinely has flu, and then he keeps it going for long enough to kind of be absent from everybody's sight, and then he can go away, and people keep saying to her, well, my father still has flu, I thought he was ill two weeks ago, and and that The pressure of keeping up the lie as well because that's the first time she's aware that she's going to have to say something to people up until now she's really liked and trusted to keep her family safe but then when they're leaving the house she and her brother sort of run around all excited going goodbye curtains goodbye door and then they get to the the hatchway through from the kitchen to the dining room and um heimpy who's been there a housekeeper, mm. sounds absolutely lovely, is one side of it. And, and she said, I don't want to leave you in the hatch. You know, so that's, you know that it, it was almost like that was the first time she'd realised they were actually going, that this physical representation of somebody the other side of it was not going to be there anymore.
2: Yes, and a function that used to be just taken for granted yeah. would never happen again. And at the time she doesn't realise she's never going to see Heimpy again, no. does she, because they can't afford to employ her anymore because they no longer have any money. Yeah,
1: and the the house later on, it's revealed that the house didn't get sold or anything because it belonged to a Jewish family, so it was untouchable.
2: Yes, and the Nazis confiscated all their possessions, which was a real thing as well that happened, uh, which is where the title of the book comes from. It's not primarily a book about uh, Hitler stealing rabbits, barely at all. This is a toy that she chooses not to take with her when they pack a few belongings to escape with. She chooses a newer toy because she thought, I haven't played with that yet. But she doesn't love that toy. This is the toy she loves and she's left it behind and then Hitler seizes it.
1: Yeah, her pink rabbit is too floppy to stand up properly. It's from of yeah. giving a bit and yeah. she takes a new dog instead.
2: Apparently the publishers really hated that title. Really? Yeah. Um, her, uh, Judy Carr's husband suggested it and uh, the publishers didn't like it and the reviewers didn't like it and uh, they said it should be called The Famous Family, which is rubbish. And
1: also, would she like that? Because she has this thing, which is very funny all the way through, about somebody tells her early on that, that uh, successful people have to have a difficult childhood. And she keeps <laughs> waiting to have one with some irony, yeah. of course. She thinks that what's happening to them is not difficult at all. And one of her brother's friends, Gunther, his mother gives her a book called They Grew to Be Great, which is all about, you know, famous people who had the most dreadful time as a child. And Julius Carr's really disappointed that things are, you know, Anna in the book, things are are working out for her. You know, it's not difficult. She loves her family. (laughs) She's not having a difficult childhood. This is a child who's actually being transported away from everything she knows, including her beloved school, and taken first to Switzerland, then Paris, then the UK. (laughs) And it's so vivid, isn't it, That, that train journey when they're leaving for Switzerland, and her father has gone on ahead and sort of sent for them. But they are obviously the mother. You, you get reading it now as an adult. The mother must have been absolutely terrified all mm-hmm. the way through. And there's that horrible bit when they think they've got to the border and they haven't. You know, the, the woman in the carriage with them says, no, we're, we're actually still in Germany, and they've been stealing themselves. And then the, the mother says to both of them, "You must when they take our passports, look at them, you mustn't say anything and I can almost feel that as a child you know that sort of huge responsibility and worrying that you would
2: <laughs> yes blurt yes because it, then the only thing you can think about is the thing you're not supposed to do and then there's a later scene as well where they're going from Switzerland to Paris and a porter puts them on a train that's headed to Germany and they only realize just before it leaves and they don't know whether he's done it deliberately for the price on the head or by accident but just that stress as well it is, is extraordinary. <laughs> it's a, it
1: does it seem like a, a lot. It is extraordinary. It also how adaptable both she and her brother were about fitting in with new groups of children when they'd never experienced anything like that before and having yeah. to learn slightly different versions of a language in Switzerland and then learning French from scratch
2: in yeah. Paris. I suppose when you have no other options, you just figure it out, don't you? Because you have to. and Because you're still alive, you have to still function each day.
1: Yeah and she just desperately wants to keep everyone together doesn't she that's yeah. such a theme throughout the book that nothing else matters and the the worst times are when they're not and actually i think it's when they get to um paris isn't it where again they're not not with the father and she said my and anna's father who who never moved quickly ran towards them and i thought gosh again that's that is something she remembers really vividly. Yes, that definitely happened.
2: Yes, it's it, it's striking the points where the adult fears are depicted, but they don't seem to stick too long. And and when her father's having nightmares as well, and she she thinks I'll cure his nightmares I'll by have having nightmare. one. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> okay. kind of worked. It did seem to work. I didn't know you could instruct dreamers. I'm a Give it a try. That, I just remember that funny thing when they're in Switzerland, too, when, when the, the boys start following her and throwing really quite hard things at her, stones mm. and the like, and, and somebody assures her that's because they really liked her. And then the next day, her, her brother starts throwing unripe apples <laughs> to <laughs> Max. And she says this wonderful thing, Max was very adaptable. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he's really assimilated, and then and then later, where they're in Paris, and he um, he's wearing shorts that he's outgrown, and he's rolled up the legs even further, and he's got his scarf tucked in, and he's like, "You look just like a French boy."
1: There's there's such pathos there, isn't there, in the character of Uncle Julius, who is a family friend who is very obviously immensely kind and placid and passive, and is convinced that everything will blow over and he should stay put. And they hear from him occasionally, and he's, he's already writing in code, you know, give my love to Aunt Alice, and, and then he does not, spoiler alert, he does not meet a good end. And I thought, again, that's so lightly done. You know, it's obviously dreadful, and the way that her father discovers it, because uh, somebody else comes to visit and hands over this watch and a very brief note, which says something like, you know, hope you have a good life, you know, really curt. And her father just sits there for ages, holding it. Thought, yeah, it's really. I knew she was a good writer, in as much as *The Tiger Came to Tea* is a wonderful book. But I didn't know. I'm honest. I didn't know that she was capable of this sort of extraordinary light sketching of something so deep.
2: Yes, Uncle Julius's story is like uh, a it's happening, there's a whole other book happening that we're not reading, which is this tragedy that befalls him, where he doesn't leave Germany because he thinks it's going to blow over. And he's like, I'm fine, all I've got is a Jewish grandmother, which of course is enough to be killed for being a Jew. And so that could be the the disaster novel that we were reading, but we're reading this one. And I, I do remember when I was a child, just knowing about bad things that had happened to relatives. We had some relatives who were political exiles. And I knew the fact of that, but I don't know what it's like to be cast out of the country you're from, you know, having to flee, having assassination attempts made against you. None of that. I was just like, oh, they were there, and now they're here running a sandwich shop. (laughs) And and, and my grandfather... This, This is an interesting thing to reflect on, because I don't think I was ever reading books to try to find anything that resembled myself I was just reading books because I I love books lots of different kinds of books and I was just interested in in a variety of different lives but reading it now I was like was was what drew me to this somewhat that I didn't have any other books reflecting non-religious Jews which I was And Jews where there was this sense of displacement, like I had a lot of books with Jewish characters like Judy Bloom books, but they're American Jews and the culture was very different. Whereas we were Jews who celebrated Christmas and were atheists, but had to do some Jewish customs for appeasement. And there weren't, we didn't know any other Jews in town. So it's like a very isolated thing, didn't have a community. And looking at this, this is kind of similar to her. Like, she only has an external sense of being a Jew when it becomes important, like it does in the book. And and then when her friends say things that you think, oh, that's a child being a bit ignorant, but it's also the kind of thing you hear adults say. So I hadn't heard that before. But also this displacement, that didn't happen directly to me, but it did happen to my father's family. His father was from Lithuania, and in his early 20s, he went AWOL from the Lithuanian army and walked to Hamburg and got on a ship and ended up in South Africa where he spent the rest of his life and during the Second World War 90% of Lithuanian Jews were killed and I think the way that my family dealt with that was just by never talking about it and never looking back because they're like, okay, well that's the past You know, the places and the people don't exist anymore so there's no point thinking about it because that will make you sad and there's too much grief to ever process so you just look forward and you don't talk about it that is shut away and so there's so much I don't know and I think reading fiction about it doesn't fill in the gaps of actually what happened to my family, but it fills in some tone, I suppose
1: Why did, why did your father come over here then?
2: Oh, to get away from his family <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and I, I don't think it was easy for Jews in South Africa either. There was a couple of big waves of Lithuanian immigration to South Africa late 1800s and then between the world wars, and I it's awful to say it's because that was one of the few places Jews could go where they weren't the worst off because. Uh, anti-black racism was so virulent in South Africa. But there was still a lot of anti-Semitism and my father was beaten up for being a Jew and all of that. Um, But he also (laughs) rejected Judaism quite wholeheartedly in his teens and his parents were not super on board with that. So I think that was one of the reasons why he was quite keen just to get away from them. And Then he ended up here.
1: When you're a child, do you read things to resonate or do you read things to... Be totally different. I mean, it is weird, isn't it? And in some ways, I think I looked for things that were very, very different yeah. that I could go towards, rather right. than thinking, "Oh, that's me."
2: Yes, exactly. I want escape. I didn't want Ooh. to see myself. It <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> would be the worst thing. Yeah, I still <laughs> feel like that about culture in a way. But I'm also not expecting it, I, and I don't ever really understand it when people are like, "Well, you need to, you know, you need to find yourself." Exactly. I, but partly because I am somewhat represented in things compared to other people who I think do need. More than that, um, but yeah, certainly this. I wasn't thinking, oh, there's a girl my age and celebrates Christmas, and like I didn't care at the time. It was just like compelling story, great. If they, if they achieved
1: something on the page that I wanted, that you know, if yeah. they were if they were doing something rather special, and I think as a child, if I had read this, I'd have been quite jealous of Anna's achievements because it's obvious that she can write and she proves in the book that she can write in every language. She wins prizes for writing in French after about two seconds. Yeah, and she can draw. She's yes. always drawing.
2: Yes, friends. and gets praise
1: for it too. Yeah. And, and sometimes money.
2: Yes. You I think the parents... I think the parents are actually being supportive of her as well. I was like, oh, that sounds nice, rather than people just being like, OK, now shut up till you're an adult. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now,
1: maybe that's part of it, isn't it, that that she and her brother exactly comes across as kind of celebrated for being children. They're not yeah,
2: dismissed. I can't, I can't imagine what that would have felt like. I was just so desperate not to be one anymore. <laughs> I was just like, read until it's done, you know, till the childhood is done, then you'll, then you'll be fine.
1: I, I so enjoy as well the fact that she is. she's kind about this, but both her parents are absolute idiots at anything practical, aren't they? They yes. simply cannot function. The mother can't cook for toffee nuts. The father has sort of grandiose ideas about what they should do, which are not rooted really in fact or ability at all. But uh, she's very kind about it. I mean, she lets them off the hook.
2: Yes, I, I felt that was a bit of tragedy to the mother because you get these glimpses where... She's clearly very beautiful and she has so much impact on people and there's a bit at the beginning where... Anna comments on how her mother seemed to do everything twice as much as anyone else because like, she's such a strong character. And in real life, her mother was a composer. And I think she was a pianist, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, I think she married, she was pretty young when she married, maybe early 20s, but he was much older. Yeah, he was mid 50s. I,
1: I didn't get that until I, I, I did some research and discovered that he died in 48, mm. and, and Judith Carr's father, and um, he was 80. I think, yeah. when he died. So, you know, there was a massive age gap.
2: Yes. Which doesn't register in the book at all, does Not it? at all. No, I really wasn't aware. And I wonder whether it's just when you're a child, your situation is normal, whatever yeah. it is. You're like, OK, this is the default. And then maybe later you're like, oh, maybe it is unusual to, <laughs> to have a 30-year age gap uh, between your parents. But because she had been this accomplished artist... I felt this frustration coming from her to be just reduced to domestic, where she has to not only has to cook, but just has to do all this household admin, and, and just the frustration at what she could have been if they'd stayed in Berlin. And absolutely, yeah, I, I hadn't noticed that either as a and child. Making I do and
1: mending, yeah. and the fact that you know she's she's not very good at it, but they still are outgrowing things. I mean, the children they keep yeah. growing all the time, yeah. So she can't keep up with that, and then when a relative, because they are actually, there. there is a concentric circle, isn't there, of people who are looking out for them. They, they're mm. not isolated in as much as they don't know anyone at all. But these people almost don't seem to get it, how fragile their situation is, and are still saying things like, well, surely your, your father's an eminent writer, he's going to be paid eventually, handsomely, without understanding why he's untouchable for a while, and also nobody mm. has any money to pay for anything. But a relative's gives, gives them some um, bales of cloth so that she can have clothes. And it's obviously a coat that she remembered for years afterwards she describes it in such loving detail. It sounds great. It sounds, sounds really green. great. Green wool. Yeah. yeah, it does. It sounds really great. But her father is upset that they've accepted this, partly because it's charity and also because the relative who gave it to them was actually supposed to be collecting all this stuff for the disadvantaged. <laughs> and she, he obviously feels very resentful or upset or whatever that they somehow fall into this category.
2: Yeah, well, pride is such a huge deal, isn't it? I was wondering that as well because the mother is, doesn't want to have to sew, but she clearly feels shame that Anna keeps outgrowing her garments and that she doesn't know how to extend her skirt so that it's long enough anymore. And th- there's also this theme where about clean necks... <laughs> and even before they leave Berlin, the housekeeper is like telling them to keep their necks clean. That's and true. Yes. Is it just because visible cleanliness means respectability?
1: Well, yeah, because there's also that when when they're um, in Switzerland and the parents are going to sort of do a recce in Paris, and the alternative to staying on their own in the hotel where they're admitted was to go to their maternal grandmother's, who they obviously. The father doesn't like her at all. Yeah. And there's obviously no particular love lost with the children. She sounds kind, but a little little flawed. And um, so they opt to stay in the hotel on their own. And the father almost says to them, you know, you're ambassadors now for, you know, for the Jewish race. And, you know, and she goes, oh, I've to keep my neck clean. <laughs> 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 oh, that's such a a sad yeah, yeah. thing to think about, isn't it, as a, as a child? This responsibility of
2: being clean in a place that you can't even
1: see. Yeah. Sorry. So you
2: don't care about. No, I don't really think I was don't. aware of my neck cleanliness until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. Now I'm very paranoid about it, particularly <laughs> after having reread the book. Yes. But I think it, it's also just that um, I noticed that as an immigrant thing again, just when you are the one who's arrived, uh, you want to not stick out for bad reasons. You have to sort of behave perfectly so that you are neither noticeable nor uh, as vulnerable as you feel. Um, like You don't want to feel on probation, you want to just like do all the things you're supposed to do. And I think second generation immigrants are often more confident. So my dad could be more rebellious than his father in South Africa, but then had certain standards for us when he was here, because it's like trying to really assimilate in these ways, perhaps. Did did he carry that with him, do you think, despite the fact that he left to get away from all that? I think there's certain fractures that more inform the shape of our family than whatever the actual history was. I think just those fractures with the past have really shaped who I am and how we all are. But of course we don't talk about stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What does it make you think about family? What does it make me think about family... Well, it's very confusing, isn't it? I think I think everyone probably has a lot of confusion about what their family means. But the strange thing is, on my mother's side, and she is British and her parents and grandparents are British, I don't know any, any more about them either. I don't know anyone... I don't know the names of the people who are older than my grandparents. I don't know what year my grandparents were born. It's strange just that it would come from there as well. Just this relentless facing forward. And maybe few Yes, all these things you don't look at because... Why cause yourself pain as if that is escaping it rather than just putting it in a room where you can hear it but you can't see what it is.
1: I should have a, a simultaneous vision of all this stuff behind us
2: mm. but also
1: with a dirty
2: neck. Oh, the worst. The true nightmare is the oh. neck dirt. They <laughs> just don't see look it, at the neck. But
1: just... they can see it and you can't. Oh, oh. I don't know what that does.
2: Get scarves. Cover it with <laughs> scarves. Never take the scarves off. It's the only way to be safe. <laughs>
1: I was also really struck by the fact that along the way there are various people who are helping them, or at least, mm. you know, providing uh, literally succour and, and a home and a hearth, but also the Fenon family in Paris, who are obviously so gracious in the way they help them without ever making them feel that they are in any way to be yeah. pitied, which is extraordinary. Yes. They're so brave in those days.
2: I also wonder whether at that time they just weren't fully aware yet. It was still so new, whether they were thinking, oh, this is a temporary situation. Perhaps
1: not. Because there's one bit, isn't there, when they've when they're they already been through, you know, losing the house, going to Switzerland, coming to Paris, assimilating, and then they celebrate New Year and somebody says, you know, here's to 1935. You think, oh, it's going to 1935. <laughs> right. You've got really quite a lot to go through yet.
2: Yes, yeah, there's that... Uh... Sense of uh, foreboding, even though it's quite a jolly book. It was interesting uh, to hear that Judith Carr wrote it because she went to the cinema with her own children to see The Sound of Music, which she said was an awful film. <laughs> but after it, her son said, well, now we know exactly what Mummy's childhood was like. And she was like, no, don't. <laughs> so she had to write the, the truthful version.
1: They were—they were, they are lovely kids, actually, aren't they? Yes. Both, both Anna and, and Max, who obviously, and um, Judith and her brother, are just you know them so well Mm. by the end of the book and it's some you kind of want to be friends with that family anyway they sound pretty great
2: yes and they've got all those little family jokes and things that just feel so real yeah totally yeah
1: I always think now this book should be required reading. You know, the, the world has been an unsettled place for a lot longer than, than when the war ended, and there are constantly people having to uproot and move. And it is you know, for luckily for most of us, hard to understand. You know, we might cherry-pick the bits that we think would be either terrible or brilliant. But the actual fact of it, and the and the fact that when throughout the book, Anna keeps in her mind going back to the house and walking through the rooms and I don't know, I think you saw the imagine, didn't you, with um, Mm. Judith Carr when she actually did go back to her childhood home for the first time since she'd left and was remarkably gracious to the woman living in it. You know, and sort of, oh, yes, I remember this window. But, you know, it was, I think she'd done all the work she needed to do long
2: before. Mm. Yeah, you get the sense that it's all very, it's no longer a source of pain if it ever was. But I also found it interesting, I was reflecting on how much of the entertainments in my childhood were related to the second world war and holocaust stuff and, and i guess just because the country was processing it for decades and i actually don't think i ever formally studied it but i feel like i know a lot of it just through cultural depictions of it but then i was thinking about again this diasporic jewish experience and how i'd read all these things about the blitz here but they were usually you know but non-Jewish Brits talking about getting bombed or read like Diary of Anne Frank, which is someone who's right in it, but not this sort of thing, this story in between and actually told by a Jewish person that lived through this particular experience she's had, but she's not talking about a Holocaust experience.
1: Whenever I saw her interviewed, she was always so, what the word, sort of cheerful about the opportunity that being a refugee gave her. Mm. I'm immensely positive. It's in the book, definitely, and it's obviously not an assumed position. It was, it was default. But I thought that, again, I don't is that inherent? Is that nature or nurture? She had that almost felt gifted by having all these experiences that then accrued. You know it still didn't give her a difficult childhood, apparently, according <laughs> to her. So she was never going to be famous. But an extraordinary character to come through that and feel, lucky me, yeah. which is
2: what she said. Now speak all more languages. <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting when um, she, not in the book, but I've seen her talk about why she wrote all the mog books that she wrote. And she said, well, I never had any novels in me except for what actually happened to me, which is this one and then the, the two sequels. But I wrote the mog books because she got a cat because she'd never been able to have pets because they were just on the move so much. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's...
1: I was remembering it, that when they're on the train, there's a woman who's got a basket, which is making lots of noise, and at the end of it, um, I think she, she or her brother asks what's in the basket, and the woman says, that's my mogger. <laughs> and they just <laughs> they laugh all the way back. Again, it's such a sweet relationship with her brother, isn't it? Yes. She just is irritated by him profoundly, and the fact he never does any work. And then he, he actually, in the, in the French school, comes top of his class... I mean, they must have been extraordinary. Those kids. My
2: I mean, brother was like that. Really, didn't, didn't, didn't work very hard. He was a year young for his school group and still like came top and everything. Just this annoyingly amazing brain. Um, but I felt, like, I felt like they were quite. They, they squabbled like siblings, but they were also quite respectful towards each other and quite helpful. Yeah, uh, which was uh, yeah really. Beautiful. I was thinking pets don't come across that well in the book because there's also their grandmother's horrible dachshund who everyone hates and then it dies and then she has a nightmare about it.
1: Yes. Oh, what's it called? Pumple? Pumple, yeah, Pumple. Yes, they're really, really bad about that dog, aren't they? Because it's obviously (laughs) so beloved and is scooped up and walked everywhere Mm. and hardly ever puts paws on the ground. (laughs) And it runs away. I don't know why I'm laughing. And is found drowned and they still can't find it in their hearts to feel sad for her. No. (laughs) That
2: is terrible. (laughs) it's kind of isn't it yeah. just the emotions that she has towards the dog you think well that's that's real love yeah even if it's not returned because you can't really tell whether or not the dog is going along with it or if it's Stockholm Syndrome or whatever no I've got a dog I don't think they're
1: empathetic at all <laughs> I don't it's I think pragmatic I know I think that Brave Rouse Bobby I think that's a fluke <laughs>
2: Well, maybe the grave smelled of beef, and that's why grave probably stuck Something around. Something like that. It's,
1: it's definitely a fluke. I don't think it's. <laughs> I don't think it's natural. <laughs> I was thinking that she she wrote um, a little thank you poem to the woman who. Um, Gave them the cloth, which is obviously she's managed to do this in translation. I've actually written it down, which is, and so I am the happy wearer of all these nice clothes from Aunt Sarah, and Aunt Sarah promptly pays her, and and she says, well, this is great because I've actually it's not a charity anymore because I've been paid for it, and also right at the beginning she says to her dad, doesn't she? I I, I only seem to be able to write about disasters, and her <laughs> teacher says, you know, can't you write about sort of flowers and kittens? And her father says, you've got to write what you know, but um, she feels very. Proud of herself that she's written about something that isn't a disaster.
2: <laughs> <laughs> keeping it light and fun. <laughs> yeah. I like how the father also just talks to her. She says he forgets who he's talking to, so he'll just say what's on his mind as if she's an adult.
1: Yeah, he he does sound he does sound an extraordinary man, doesn't he? Because to be so diminished by what happened so quickly, and then to be desperately trying to get work wherever he is, and obviously, people are still trying to give it to him but they can't really afford to pay him and then all of a sudden at the end he suddenly has a film script accepted yeah ta-da! yeah thousand pounds which would have been a lot of money it's a lot of money now but a lot of money then which meant that they could all stick together and she she says that doesn't she that she never felt as if she was a refugee because they were all together and she didn't want to feel like
2: one when they were apart yeah But I suppose there was also that anxiety of if any of them was somewhere else, then you wouldn't know whether or not they were in danger or if they were ever going to come back. Whereas if they're there, then you're like, okay, I can relax. Yeah,
1: the world is safe. You can see them. I met her briefly once, actually. It's no surprise to me that this little girl is resilient and quirky slightly and funny because that's how she aged she had a definite i mean sparkle sounds a bit patronizing but it kind of was that you know she was a really she was totally herself even as an old woman and one of my grandsons he was really little was along for the ride and and sophie i think his mum said oh this is the lady who wrote mog and he spontaneously hugged her and it was really oh, yeah the power absolutely absolutely did yeah. you mind She loved it. Oh, great. Actually, she
2: loved it. Yeah. She was startled.
1: (laughs) It probably happens to her a lot. Small redhead boy throws himself at her. (laughs)
2: Yeah. It's funny how um, quite often in the book she says, if you have a famous parent, then you don't get to be famous yourself, and that's a source of disappointment. Uh, Because also there's quite a lot of famous people in the family. Her mother's this composer. There's a lot of writers and, uh, like you said, judges. and A lot of them became exceptional or already were and as did she yeah absolutely yeah (laughs) when was the last time you read it before we made you Uh, I was trying to remember I would have thought probably I was trying to remember when I first read it and I think I would have been about six or seven and I don't know whether that was too young or not but it didn't strike me as such at the time and I think I probably would have last read it when I was about nine nine or ten Anna's age really at the same age, yeah, yeah. same age, yeah. and I think it really holds up to go back to it. It really does, yeah. I, I was
1: pleasantly surprised by how good it is. It's so good, yeah. It's because it's more than her story, isn't it? It's somehow about every child's journey through through difficulty and. And all of us, and obviously writing it as an adult, all of us who understand how difficult it is to be somewhere you don't feel familiar.
2: Right, you're always faced with these unfamiliar situations because so much is new when you're a child, not experienced yet. And I remember feeling a lot of anxiety, like how do you cope with this room full of people? And then that the, there's the tension between that, you know, all those unknowable and somewhat stressful things to deal with, and then this comfort with the the family, which not everyone has, of course. So I suppose those things would chime with people, even if you've not been uh, fleeing from uh, a regime that wants to kill you. Yeah. No, I think it goes back to that thing, doesn't it, of
1: the safe place being inside a book. And probably Mm. for her, writing it, it was still a place of safety with her family. Oh, gosh, Ellen, it's been such a pleasure to dip into this book, especially with you. It's just been... Joyful. I'm glad you liked it. I loved it. I really loved it. I'm glad you liked it again. I am.
2: I'm very relieved as well. (laughs) (laughs) I hope the listeners like it. They better try. Yes.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton, and Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast.